Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Well, guys, last week we began to dig into uh, the teaching of Jesus regarding the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It was, uh, it was the most prominent theme of the teaching of Jesus. In fact, right after Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, we see him begin to preach a message of repentance with the promise of a coming kingdom. Matthew 4.17 says this, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I need you to understand this because as we kind of continue to flesh out this theme, as we look at the teachings of Jesus in regard to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus didn't merely speak of the kingdom of heaven as a place that we go to when we die. I think some of us have this mentality that, uh, you know, life is just going to be rough and it's going to be disastrous and it's going to be terrible and difficult and hard, but one day it's going to be worth it because we get to go to heaven. I believe Jesus was referencing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as a place that is very much accessible in the here and now. Um, I believe that the kingdom of God is a here and now reality as well as one that is yet to come. An invitation to the kingdom is an invitation to a different and a better way of living. And that invitation is presented to you and I today because the king, namely Jesus, is the one extending it. He has made a way for us to enter into life with him, and I believe that that life in him is represented as the kingdom of God in the scriptures. And Jesus promises this. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven was within reach. It is accessible because of who Jesus is. And uh, one of these days in, in the theme of uh, writing these messages, when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, I really want to break down this idea of it being an already but not yet kingdom. There is this aspect of the kingdom that we are invited into with life in Jesus that is miraculous and it's awesome and it's great, but it is going to get better one day when Jesus comes again. I need you to understand this, and, and, and it may not be the, the prominent central point of my teaching throughout what we're talking about here in terms of the kingdom of heaven, but there is going to come a day where Jesus establishes his kingdom forever, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Christ. There is going to come a day where everything will be placed under his rule and under his reign. And it's going to be awesome. And we long for that day. And we cry for that day. And we look forward expectantly to that day. But here and now, we are still invited into a radically different way of living when it comes to following Jesus. And Jesus describes that as the kingdom of heaven, as the kingdom of God. And he uses parables. Or, or stories in teaching to describe what the kingdom of God is like and what the kingdom of God is all about. It was actually, uh, it, it's something that we looked at last week. We began to look at 
these teachings of Jesus, these parables of Jesus. And we looked at probably one of the more intense ones where uh, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as being like a wedding feast. You guys remember that? If you don't, we do have a podcast. I encourage you to jump on it. But if we were going to boil it down to, to just the nuts and bolts of what we came away from last week, we arrived at the conclusion that God expects and enables us to change. That's a, that's a, that's a really like simplistic way of looking at where we were last week. But he enables us by way of his Holy Spirit, but he also has expectation of us that we would live differently when coming into his kingdom. And uh, it's this mentality of it's, we don't serve a come-as-you-are, stay-as-you-are kind of Messiah. Jesus very much welcomes us as we are, but it was, it's with full intention that what he has to offer us will change us. It is, it is, uh, it is startling, and it's uh, uh, startling might, might not even be the right word there. It is blasphemous to come to Jesus as you are and stay as you are and pretend like things are okay. It's insulting to the work of the cross. It's insulting to what Jesus went through on Calvary to somehow entertain this idea that Jesus wants to save me from my sin, but he doesn't want to free me in this life. Because he comes to save the person. The idea that Jesus came to save your soul is one that is is flawed in a sense because it's missing the important aspect where God came to save the whole person. We see this mentality throughout the writings of Paul where he didn't just, Jesus isn't just interested in saving your soul from some kind of future, uh, for some future calamity. He's interesting in saving the mind, the body, and the spirit and redeeming the whole person. Is he not? And that, 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 that requires things to change. Well, anyway, last week we looked at the, the, the parable and the story of the wedding feast and the man who wanted to enter in, and he did enter in, but he wasn't wearing the right garment, and he refused to change, and he refused to meet the king's expectation, and he was cast out into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. I just wrote that Jesus paid too high of a price for us to embrace him as Savior, but not as Lord. We want Jesus to save our souls, but leave our earthly lives alone. And he does not leave that to us as an option. But we concluded last week, and, and I hit on this, because as we talk about the kingdom, we're really talking about Jesus' rule and reign. Most of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, a lot of people that aren't followers of Jesus or maybe have just kind of been closely associated with Jesus in the past, uh, may be familiar with this. But in Luke uh, chapter 11, we see the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. We want to pray right. It's a, it's a good prayer to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responds to him. He says, when you pray like this, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this over Pagosa Springs. I pray this over my life, Lord. I want your kingdom to come. I want your kingdom to come in Pagosa Springs. I want your kingdom to come in my life just like it is in heaven. But what we understand here, his kingdom comes where his will is being done. 
And when we do the will of the Father, I believe we are actually advancing his kingdom. The kingdom is established where Jesus is regarded as king. It is defined by his rule. And if his will is being done, his kingdom is there. And so by the inverse of that, we can understand if God's will is not being done, if God's will is not being fulfilled, it's evidence that his kingdom is not established there. I believe it's important for us, if we're going to say we want to advance the kingdom of God, and we want to see it happen in our culture, and we want to see it happen in our city and in our community, we have to ask, Lord, would your will be done? And I think a lot of the times we have an outward perspective of this, but reality uh, really kind of begins to grip me when I pray this prayer because his kingdom has to be established in me first and foremost. I need to make sure that I'm coming before the Lord and asking, is your will being done in my life? Is it bringing glory to you? Because therefore the kingdom will be established. It's not enough just, Lord, pray your kingdom come. Your will be done and act like it's chance and ask him to do it because what he's really looking for is permission for his will to be fulfilled in your life. Therefore, the kingdom can come forth in your actions and in your conduct in the way that you live. Matthew chapter 7 is one of the most intense uh, passages of scripture, I, I believe, in the entirety of the New Testament. It's a startling thing. Because Jesus says this in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone that recognizes me as Lord with their lips is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. I didn't say that. I didn't set that up as the requirement. This is what Jesus says. He says, unless you do the will of my Father, you don't have a place at the table. And a lot of us, we want to say, yes, just say a prayer. Yes, just believe. That's the entry point. But this is, this is what we talked about last week. That's the invitation into the wedding feast. That's the opening of the door for us. But there is ex- expectation from the king of glory that we would change our lives and that we would do his will and it's not just that we would do something that we're incapable of doing guys I don't have any expectation for my son Phineas to be able to sit down at the table and do calculus I should maybe maybe I'm just too easy on the boy but I just I don't have expectation of him to do that because he's not been equipped, he's not been taught. That isn't something that he's able to do. But I do have expectation for him to sit down and be able to do simple arithmetic of 2 plus 2 and 5 plus 5 because he's been taught, he's been equipped, he's been given the tools, he's been given the knowledge, and he's been able to do that. And I believe this, friends. God does not expect anything from you that he's not fully prepared to equip you to do. He's not going to ask you to do something that he's not going to equip you by the power of his spirit and the authority of his word to do. So when he asks you to live holy, he's prepared to come alongside you and give you the Holy Spirit in such a manner that you can meet his expectations. This isn't just this mentality of, men. you're perfect, and if you've ever messed up, then we're throwing you to the wayside. 
But I do believe it is a possibility. I do believe it is the expectation and that we should set our eyes to live our lives in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord day in and day out. Because where his will is being done, his kingdom is being established. And the promise of anyone to enter into the kingdom is not based upon what they say, it's based upon what they do. Because it says that many are going to recognize Jesus as Lord. They'll call out to him and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me, I didn't know you. That's terrifying. And these people that are crying out, Lord, Lord, they even have stuff to back it up. If you continue to read Matthew chapter 7, they're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're doing miracles. They're doing this stuff. And Jesus says, none of that means anything to me unless I know you. Man, we could get off on that, but that's not the message this morning. The message this morning begins in Mark chapter 4, if you'll turn with me there. We're going to be looking at the parables of Jesus um, where he used to describe the kingdom. I'm really excited for Easter Sunday next week. I need you to understand something. I'm not good about thematic messages regarding church holidays. That is something that I have been notoriously bad at. There have been years where uh, I didn't know it was Easter. I know that that's uh, a bad thing to admit as a pastor, but in full disclosure, they keep changing the date that Easter is on. Like every year, I wish we could just like set it in stone. I've never forgotten when Christmas was, um, but uh, I think it was four or five years ago. I believe, Adam, you were still here the first time around. Um, but I had prepared a message on uh, a different resurrection, not on the resurrection of Jesus, uh, but on the resurrection of Lazarus, because I thought I had another week until Easter because I was looking at an outdated calendar from the year before. And uh, do you remember this? Okay. Adam just, Adam just looked at me. There's still no excuse, man. You can say it however you want. It's, it's a pretty, pretty big, big faux pas there. Like, this is... Like, we've got two holidays you're really supposed to know about when you're a pastor, and you missed one of them. <laughs> but uh, I know today is Palm Sunday, and I actually know that Easter's coming up, and I'm excited for it, but I'm planning on continuing in our regular teaching uh, on the parables of the kingdom of heaven, and yes, we're going to preach the cross, yes, we're going to preach Jesus, but I'm just under the firm belief that these are things that we should be ministering and preaching all the time. Not just a special Sunday one time a year. And I know that we have visitors and I know that, that people, uh, attendance tends to increase. And there's this pressure for us to do things maybe a little bit out of the box and a little bit special because it's a special Sunday. And we want to obviously recognize that and be sensitive to that. But one of our firm beliefs here at Open Door Church is how people come into the door uh, is how people, how people are going to continue to come back. Um, and I, I know that that maybe sound like lazy or something along those lines, but we don't always go out with like a, a big, tremendous, in-your-face production on a Sunday morning or especially on an Easter because we know that that isn't how it's always going to be. We try to keep it the same way week after week after week after week, um, and we try to always be sensitive to the message of the cross and those things. Anyway... Last, uh, Jesus help me. <laughs> We're going to look at the parable of the sower today. 
beginning in Mark 4, verses 1 through 12. Jesus says this. Well, first of all, uh, Mark says this, and then Jesus will speak. It says, and again, he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables. And he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root in it, withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And then he said to them, He who has ears, let them hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Jesus' use of parables was entirely different than other teachers and rabbis of the day. You see, it was a common practice for rabbis to utilize symbolic stories to illustrate a point. A lot of the time, preachers, myself included, will come up with some kind of uh, maybe illustration to connect a thought or an idea that you guys can relate with. And Jesus would do the same thing. But I, I'm reading these passages and these parables that Jesus would tell, and I think he would have probably failed his homiletics class in seminary. Homiletics is the study of like the art of preaching. Uh, I, think, I think he probably would have gotten a pretty bad grade because Jesus is up here telling stories and essentially just kind of giving riddles to people without any explanation. You see, the rabbis and the teachers of Jesus' day would have a point and they would explain the point and they would present the point or the main idea. If you talk to most teachers today and preachers today, they would tell you, you want to have a clear idea when you're speaking publicly, when you're trying to teach and connect a thought. You want the idea to be crystal clear so people can resonate with it and take it home. But that wasn't Jesus's kind of mentality when he was teaching about the kingdom of God. He would use these stories. He would use these parables and say, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Or, or here, he'll be talking about uh, a sower that would go out and throw seed on the ground. And, and depending on the soil and the condition of the soil, it would produce different things. And then he just says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And then he's like, peace out, I'm Jesus. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is not the best sermon I've ever heard. You were supposed to be the teacher, Jesus. Like we've, we've heard people talk about your teaching and, and we've traveled far and wide to hear you say something like extremely profound that would change our lives. But we have no idea what any of that means. And then it says when he's alone, those around him, his followers, his disciples, would come and begin to ask him questions about all the, the seemingly nonsensical things that he just said. And he gives this response. He says, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. 
But he's saying to those outside, the things come in parables. You see, the invitation to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear, is open to all because we all have ears, right? But only a few are willing to go deeper. Only a few are willing to really go to to the target, to, to the source, to get the answers. But why? Why speak in parables? Why, why speak in riddles, Jesus? Why not just shoot it to a straight? Because I believe this, the kingdom of God and the things that Jesus are, the things that, the things that Jesus are, is trying to explain about the kingdom of God makes zero sense apart from him. The principles of the kingdom and the teachings of the kingdom make zero sense apart from the king himself. I need you to understand this because the kingdom that we're invited to, the the life in Jesus that we're invited to makes zero sense from a carnal, worldly perspective. The things that Jesus tells us to do, the things that Jesus tries to explain to us really make zero sense unless you have revelation of the one who is telling you to do these things or the one that is explaining these things. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. The meek will inherit the kingdom of God. You're supposed to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Lose your life in order to find it. None of this makes sense. Does it? From from a carnal perspective, from an earthly perspective, you're like, Jesus, you've lost your marbles. Like, what are you talking about, man? And it's because... As Jesus would describe it, his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't make sense through the lens of of carnality, the way that we live our life, right? Our, uh, our, Our culture would perpetuate this idea, do whatever you need to do to get to the top, right? You've got to be first. You've got to be the best, right? You've got to step on other people in order to climb the top of the corporate ladder and make sure that you sit there safe and secure. It's not a message of deny yourself and take up your cross. The message of our culture is uh, do what makes you feel happy, right? It's treat yourself mentality. Do as you will mentality, right? It's contrary to the way of the kingdom. And I think Jesus understood this and it was important to him that those that would want to go deeper would seek out the answers those that wanted to be a part of the kingdom would make sure that they didn't try to do it disconnected from the source of the kingdom being Jesus himself but thankfully Jesus doesn't leave his followers without an explanation he doesn't just leave everybody hanging by a thread Those that were willing to come close and spend time with him did get the answers that they were looking for. And Jesus would break that down in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He says this to them, do you not understand this parable? No, that's why we're asking Jesus. How then will you understand all the parables? We're going to need you to explain them to us, Jesus. Thank you for that. And then he goes on. He says, the sower sows the word. He's talking about the word of God here. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. 
but they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a short time afterward when tribulation and persecution arises. For the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. There's a few things that I, I think we can pull out of this passage that Jesus is talking about uh, when he comes to the kingdom, it, it's mentioned in all of the synoptic gospels. It's mentioned here in Mark chapter 4. I believe it's in Luke chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is a, a passage of, uh, of scripture that breaks down all of the kingdom parables uh, that Jesus talks about to, to relay what the kingdom of heaven is like. But when I'm reading this and I, I'm looking at this and I, and we, we have all these explanations for why some people stay following Jesus and some people give up so soon and some people uh, are really in it for the long call. And Jesus here begins to break down what happens in people's lives when they stop following him, where the word of God stops producing fruit, when things uh, become disastrous. But the first thing that I want to look at is in 4.15. It says this, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that has been sown in their hearts. The first point I want to make is that there is a real adversary. There is a real enemy to the word of the Lord. There is a real enemy to the people of God. Less than 30%. Less than 30% of Americans believe in a real devil. That's crazy. That's not polling people who identify as born-again Christians. That's just people in general. To me, I'm shocked that that many people believe in the devil. 30%. That's a lot of people when we think about it. <laughs> Less than 30% of people believe in the devil. But what's shocking what was shocking and startling to me the most was um, this is this is crazy. This is based on a Barna study. More than half of the people polled that identified as a born again Christian, it was fifty seven percent of Christians that identified as born again Christians did not believe in a real devil. I, I, that, that's hard for me to, that's almost 60%. That's almost like the inverse, right, uh, of 30% of, of Americans. That tells me that more people believe in a devil that aren't Christians than are Christians. That, I don't really know how that math works out, so don't fact check me on that. That, that was just off the top of my head. I'm doing, I'm trying to do that. Numbers aren't my skill set, so uh, neither are statistics. But there are a lot of people that believe in a devil that don't believe in a Holy Spirit. This is crazy to me. Um, and that's a topic for uh, a different day. But there is nearly equal number of people, of those polled by this Barna study, that don't believe that the Holy Spirit exists in an active role um, as those that believe that the devil doesn't exist. And so the popular thought, friends, is that Satan, Lucifer, the devil, 
that they don't exist as a real being, but rather a symbolic personification of evil. He no longer exists as the accuser or our adversary, as scripture would define it, but rather just as a figment of our imagination. And uh, I got to be clear with you. I, I take a firm stance on this because Jesus spoke of the enemy. Jesus spoke of the devil. And scripture speaks of an adversary that exists not just as a personification of evil, not just as an abstract thought, but as a real enemy that we need to be on guard against. This is what Charles Badere would say. He says, the devil's cleverest while is to make men believe that he does not exist. John Wilkinson would say, one of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. Another, perhaps equally fatal, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them if they get into true silence. Well, guys, I have bummer news for you today. As much as I would like to say, you know what, yeah, the devil's not real, but Jesus is. As real as Jesus is, I believe there is an enemy, and his name is the Satan. He's the accuser. He's the adversary of God's people. And guess what? He has a plan for your life. You know, you, you probably have heard it said that God has a plan for your life. Um, you might have a, a plaque with Jeremiah 29, 11 taken out of context for your life, right? <laughs> you can get them at Hobby Lobby, I'm sure. Some of you probably have them in your homes. But just as much as the Lord has a plan for you to prosper, just as much as the Lord has a plan for you to succeed, as a, has a plan for you to, to thrive, the enemy, our adversary, the devil, has a plan for your life that is completely the inverse and the opposite of it. John 10.10 10 tells us that the thief comes, uh, not, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In contrast, Jesus says that he comes that we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. Yeah. Friends, we'll never be on guard against something we don't believe in. There's no reason to be. There's no reason to be alert. There's no reason to be sober-minded. There's no reason to, to, to live our lives in such a way uh, on, to, if we don't believe that the enemy is real. <laughs> First Peter would tell us in five, uh, in chapter five, verses eight and nine, to stay alert, to watch out for your great enemy, the devil, because he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. If you're going to highlight anything, if you're going to take note of anything, circle that word suffering because we're going to talk about it here in a moment. But. Just because the devil doesn't exist as a little man with a pitchfork and a tail on your shoulder doesn't mean he's not real. I think, I think maybe some people get confused because they, they equate the enemy and they equate uh, the things and the workings of the devil uh, to just this kind of personification of evil and all this that's wrong. But um, 
Yes, there's brokenness in this world. Yes, there is hurt and there's pain and there's suffering and there's genuine evil. And those are all tools and things that the enemy uses to disrupt the lives of people and hinder the advancement of the kingdom of God. I don't want us to grow naive in thinking that there is not a real spiritual enemy that exists against the people of God. Things are difficult. Following Jesus can be hard and things can go wrong because there is a real enemy that does not want to see you succeed in giving your life to the Lord and letting it being used, let it being used for the kingdom of God and his glory. There is a real enemy. And he sucks. There's a song. Did anybody listen to Striper back in the day? Yeah. We should bring that back. They were playing in Farmington when I was a youth pastor. And I tried to get the youth kids to go with me and get them excited to go see Striper. And I, that had to be like in their 60s back then. I don't know how old they are now. And I played them a music video to hell with the devil, you know. I'm not going to try to sing it like, like Michael Sweet or anything like that. But I don't know why I'm saying that has nothing to do with my sermon, <laughs> my message. Just one of those nostalgia flashbacks there. You guys aren't familiar with Striper, some of, some of you that are younger um, and haven't heard of Striper, you should really Google them. There was a, there was a time when Christian music was just different. And <laughs> I don't want to say bad, it was different, it's fun, you should, uh, you should look it up, it's great. Oh, Jesus, help me. We're talking about suffering. <laughs> Because there's a real enemy, and we saw that there, that there are many that will not come to Jesus because of the work of the enemy. It says here that the enemy will come and snatch away the seed before it ever has an opportunity to take root, before anything ever materializes and happens with it. And that is because there is a real enemy that does not want people to know Jesus. And when we think about the work of the Lord and the work that missionaries do and the faithfulness of them spreading the word of God and scattering seed wherever they can, we have to understand the, the reality that there is a real enemy working against that work of advancing the kingdom of God. There is a real enemy that is trying to hinder people from coming to know Jesus. And he'll do whatever he can, whether that be uh, causing offense or, 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 or whatnot against the word to prevent it from ever taking root. So what do we do? We cast more seed. Anyway, that's a different message for a different time. But for this morning, I want you to understand that there is a real adversary against God's people that does not want people to follow Jesus and does not want seed to take root. So it says immediately he snatches it up. The second thing that we see here in Mark 4.17, the second type of soil that's described here, it says they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they, they stumble. I feel like this, friends, is more tragic than the first type of soil that we read because we see here that this... The seed initially takes root. It initially begins to grow. Things are positive. Things are looking 
good here, right? But it says there's no root in themselves. There's no longevity. There's nothing sustainable here within this root. And it says, uh, as tribulation and persecution arises, for the word's sake, they tumble. For the, word, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. You see, I think, I think we probably all can recognize or count someone I have friends that I was in ministry school with that started out well in following Jesus, but then things got difficult. Things weren't easy. Things weren't like how they envisioned they were going to be, and they jumped the Jesus train and said, peace, I'm out. And they're not following Jesus today. They're on the next latest, greatest trend of progressivism or, or whatnot, and, and they, they just recognize, man, you know what? Following Jesus wasn't everything that I was promised because I think we have done a poor job of promising that Jesus is going to make everything easy. And that stands in defiance of every message that Jesus gave about following him. He never once promised that it was going to be easy. But people sign up to follow Jesus. People say yes to Jesus under this false impression that he's going to make everything easier. When in reality, we, we're, we're, we're firm on the truth that yes, when we say yes to Jesus, he makes everything better, right? He makes hard things good, but they're still hard. <laughs> it's worth it in the end. But the idea that it was going to be easy was one that Jesus never promised. And I believe it's the assemblies of God in Tanzania that has adopted a 17th fundamental truth. So for those of you who don't know, Open Door Church is, is an Assemblies of God church. We have 16 fundamental truths that uh, kind of define our doctrine in those things. And they're, they're scriptural, they're biblical there. But the church in Tanzania adopted a, a 17th fundamental truth. And it's designed, uh, or they say this, that it is, um, you will suffer persecution. Ooh, sign me up for that one. <laughs> And I don't know if this is an official statement or if it's like just something they've adopted kind of in passing, but the reality of it is true because Scripture tells us that. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, all, everybody say all. all. That includes you if you were not, uh, not following this train of thought. But all includes us, <laughs> even in the West, even in America, even, even our comfortable churches here, this includes everyone, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Woo! That doesn't like... I can't just preach that and be like, send me your seed money and God will bless you with persecution. It doesn't quite preach as easy on TBN, does it, Right? It doesn't quite have the same ring to it as the prosperity gospel where we said, hey, say yes to Jesus and give some money and he's going to give you a million dollars. Everybody wants to sign up for that Jesus. And everybody wants to be like, woo, sign me up for persecution and tribulation. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't preach the same way. But that's the message that Jesus preached. That's what scripture teaches us. It's just that a gospel of suffering doesn't quite sell as well as a prosperity one, does it? Notice this, that tribulation arises here on account of the word. 
Not on account of somebody's poor decision-making, not on account of their sinful rebellion, not because they were just knuckleheads. Doing right and being blessed does not excuse us from the promise of suffering. I called it the promise of suffering there because that's what Jesus would describe it as. Because he'd go on in John 16, in verse 33, he says, These things that I have, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Then he goes on to say this, in the world you will have tribulation. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself. But be of good cheer. Be happy. Things are going to be difficult. Things are going to be hard. But you can be happy. You can be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And so the promise is, yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be tribulation. Yes, there will be hardship. But Jesus is faithful to be there with you through it. And this is what separates the believer from the non-believer. It's not the promise of an absence of suffering. It's the promise of a God who suffers alongside you. Because uh, there's suffering that exists for the believer and the non-believer. There's injustice that exists for the believer and the non-believer. There's rich and there're poor believers, there's rich and poor non-believers. That is nothing that Jesus promises there. What he promises is to be with us through the ups and downs. And so I'm sorry, friends, this morning, if you said yes to Jesus because you thought it was just going to magically make all of your problems disappear and go away. What happens when we say yes to Jesus is an invitation for him to walk this road with us. He's a God that's well acquainted with our suffering. He knows how to get through it even when we don't. But for some, when persecution and tribulation arises for the word's sake, because they have no root in themselves, There's no perseverance, there's no tenacity, there's no longevity, they fade away. The cares of this world, I talked a little bit about this uh, two weeks ago when we were preaching through the life of Gehazi. We talked about the things that would deter and hinder. And I would encourage you guys to even go back a a few weeks ago if you didn't catch that teaching. But I I believe it's a powerful one and it's an important one. But here in uh, Mark 4.18 it says, Now those are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. When I was teaching about Gehazi, I talked about how unfruitfulness is just a way, another way of saying unmet potential. Because here we see that the soil was good soil, enough for things to grow, right? There was things growing there. We see it's weeds that would grow up and choke things out. But inevitably, the soil was unfruitful Because weeds grew and fruit didn't. There were other things that were more important than the word. We see see the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches. 
and the desire for other things that come in and choke the word out. In Luke's telling of this parable, he talks about the pleasures of this life. Guys, the things of this world, the pleasures of this life, wealth, you know, the responsibility, these things aren't inherently evil. But if we're not guarded against them, and this is where the problem comes in because immediately like, hey, responsibility, yeah, that's, that's a big thing. Like we need jobs. I need to take care of my family. I need to be making sure that I'm being responsible, right? Those are good things. Everybody would say thumbs up to those things. Uh, it's probably a good idea for me to make some money and make sure that I can provide and, and have those things in my life. I can give that a thumbs up. There, there's good. You know, nobody likes a lazy person. Jesus says that if they don't work, they don't eat, right? Scripture says that. Uh, well, anyway, uh, that's important. Those are good things. And, and we know that Jesus isn't just anti-pleasure. He's not. He actually promises pleasure uh, when we come to him. But we see these desires for other things that begin to come in and choke out the word makes the word unfruitful. My caution to us, friends, and the importance of what Jesus is saying here is that we don't just allow the cares of this world, the seemingly important things that kind of come in under the disguise of just, uh, you know, responsibility begin to choke out our passion for Jesus. Because it will. I've lost too many friends that, you know, well, my focus now is just on starting a family and on raising a family. Or my focus now is just on a career. These are the same friends that I was in youth group with where we said, yes, that we were going to sell it all and follow Jesus even if it cost us our lives. There's a handful of us that are still chasing after Jesus with everything inside of us. But so many of us, I'm thinking, we had 400 kids in our youth group that we're on fire for Jesus if you want to use the Christianese. So many of them have allowed the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of wealth or just desires for other things come in and choke out the passion and choke out the love for Jesus. And if we are not careful, friends, the enemy will come in subtly and these things will begin to grow to the place where church is no longer a priority. Our kids are. Well, okay, you're going to get on me for that one. I, I get it. <laughs> our family's important, but if our families ever take precedent over our relationship with God, our priorities become out of whack. You guys got to see that Jesus Revolution movie. A lot of you uh, got to go watch it, and if you haven't, but there's a, there's a part in that movie where this guy... Uh, Greg Laurie is looking at his soon-to-be wife and says, you know what, if you ever get in the way of me and God, we're done. And they kind of laugh because it was kind of cheesy and whatnot. But the reality of it is, is we must guard our relationship with the Lord. We must steward it well because seemingly harmless things, seemingly good things even in some people's eyes, will come in and begin to rob passion for Jesus. And I'm, and I'm frustrated, friends. I'm discouraged because, yes, I'm all pro-family. Yes, I'm all pro-working hard. Yes, I'm pro-making sure that we're making ends meet and these things that, that really do require our attention. But when it comes to robbing your passion for Jesus... 
There is no job on the face of the planet that is as important as you serving Jesus with your whole heart. My, my buddy Jeremiah, you guys know Jeremiah. I would run into him all the time at City Market. And that place was like bleeding him dry every time I would talk to him. He was like, I haven't had a day off in like six months. And I had a very honest conversation with him one Sunday morning. I think I was going in to pick up donuts. And dude, he was working in the meat department. I could just tell like he was tired. And I was like, man, you know what you need to do? You need to just quit your job. Like, I, I, I realize that sounds like terrible advice. And typically when I tell people to quit their jobs, I'm telling them, dude, you should just quit your job and go snowboarding with me. And it's, it's more lighthearted. But in, in reality, I felt like I had a word uh, for, for my friend here saying, you know what, there is nothing about this job. All you, I've ever heard it say is that it's keeping you from fellowship with other believers. You haven't been able to go to church in months. At that point in time, I think it might have been like over a year. He hadn't been able to just go to church and be a part of, of a fellowship of saints. And, and in reality, friends, there is no job, there is no career that is worth sacrificing your relationship with the Lord. I would tell that same thing to any of you here today if you had a job that was making you lots of money and was very secure, that was keeping you from fellowship with other believers, I would tell you to quit that junk in an instant. Nobody gave me an amen on that. <laughs> but we so easily justify some of these things. So easily justify the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things and pass them off as no big deal. Friends, there's a lot of things that I like. I really like Jeeps. I really like Frisbee. I, I could go on for a really long time. I really like the snow and snowmobiling and snowboarding and all the things. <laughs> but if any of those things ever come in between my relationship with Jesus, they've got to go. God can use them. God will use your passions and desires in remarkable ways. But it's so important for us that we keep the one thing necessary. Keep the one thing in perspective, that being Jesus. Jesus has pretty harsh responses for unfruitfulness. Continuing back, if we jump to Matthew chapter 7, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is very much no nonsense when it comes to fruitlessness. Either you produce fruit or you don't. He cursed a fig tree because it wasn't producing fruit. It wasn't even the right season for the fig tree to produce fruit. Like, Jesus, man, you're harsh, dude. Right? He goes up to the fig tree and he's like, hey, man. There's no fruit on this tree. Be cursed. <laughs> What's up with that? I've always preached it this way, that I believe in the presence of Jesus, there is no excuse to never being bearing fruit. If we are actually in the presence of the Lord, then we should bear fruit in any and every season. But here cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things choke out the word. There's a big difference between fruit and weeds, harvest and weeds. I can tell you from experience that weeds don't need any kind of special attention to grow. 
In fact, you can dump diesel fuel on them. And they grow. Nobody tell OSHA or, or like the EPA, but I have tried to kill these weeds, these thistles and these red rocks that come up out of here. I've, I had, a, I had a, a friend that told me if I mixed diesel fuel, <laughs> never mind, I'm not going to expose my friend here. He's a pastor. Just, I'll throw that out there. He, he told me, this is what you need to do. Can I tell you, I felt like those, those weeds turned into like mutants after I fed them <laughs> diesel fuel, which should kill them. <laughs> Didn't work. But if I'm trying to grow grass here, I can baby that thing. I can, I can water it six times a day and pour the fertilizer on it and poke the holes in it and, and be so attentive to it and still have it not grow. <laughs> Boils down to if we have good soil in that. When we planted our yard back here, I was so dead set on having a healthy lawn that I went overkill with it and we excavated the whole backyard and we brought it down like three feet and regraded it and then I paid a ton of money, thousands of dollars to get good topsoil that didn't come from around here to put it down and put in an irrigation system that was the bane of Elliot and I's existence for a little bit because <laughs> it was, anyway, uh, not pertinent to the message here this morning but eventually uh, through much hard work and preparation I have, a, I have a really nice lawn, and I'm really excited about it. it, it it's ba the backyard. You can't see it from the front, and you're like, wow, Nate, that's, uh, yeah. In the back, we'll invite you guys over for, for lemonade and barbecue this year, and it'll be great. But in the backyard, we have grass, and it's awesome, and my kids love it. Right now, we don't. It's like three feet of snow. But in the summertime, we will have grass, and it'll be great. But the reality of it is, for things to grow, for you to produce fruit, it takes work. Weeds, not so much. You just leave things unattended, weeds will grow. If we're not diligent, if we're not sober, and if we're not on guard against the deceitfulness of riches, against the cares of this life, against inferior passions and desires, those things will grow. They will go unchecked and they will rob your passion for Jesus. But if you're going to be in this for the long haul, if you're going to produce fruit, if you're going to bell, if you're going to, uh, to have a harvest here of 30-fold, of 60-fold, of 100-fold, it's going to require work. That doesn't, that doesn't preach super well. And you're like, oh, no, it's all just faith, brother. The reality of it is entry into the kingdom is because you believe. Entry into the kingdom is built on faith. But there is still hard work that is expected of you. If you're going to produce fruit, things are going to change. And again, I'll, I'll reiterate this and I'll say it as many times as I can. He will give the Holy Spirit to help you. If we're going to bear fruit, it's going to require us to be all in. It's going to require us to be on guard against a real enemy that would try to snatch away what the Lord's doing in our lives and in the lives of our friends. It's going to require us to, to, to have some sort of perseverance 
To be able to be willing to trust in Jesus that his plan and his, his desire for us is still, still to prosper and still to do good. Even when there's hardships, even when there's tribulations. It's going to require us to be on the lookout against the weeds. To deal with the things that would try to come in and choke out what God is doing in our lives. To be diligent to put in some effort because the good soil is described as this in Mark 4.20. Because the seed that's sown on good ground, those who hear the word, they accept it and they bear fruit. We need to hear the word of the Lord. We need to respond to what he's doing with acceptance. That's just like, I'll accept that as fact. You know, that's not just like allowing something to happen, to accept it here. It's talking about to believe it, to receive it, and to act upon it. To act upon what the Lord is speaking and what the Lord is doing. And in doing so, you will bear fruit. But I believe in order to do so, you have to be willing to let the Lord use you and be willing to actually put in some real, tangible effort by way of the Holy Spirit in His strength to see things happen and see things change. We want to just press the button. Act like there's a Jesus button. Let's press it. Boom. Then all of a sudden, everything's just easy. I really wish that existed. It would make discipleship so much easier. Instead, we've got to do things like Alpha and Deeper Project and entice you guys with food. <laughs> Praise God for food. Oh, man. I'm, what are we eating for dinner Tuesday night? Spaghetti? Oh, great. Praise the Lord. It sounds like they're having fun downstairs. Please pray for my wife. But Jesus is big on this fruitfulness thing. And it just reminded me where we've spent the last number of weeks uh, previous to this where we were talking about John the Baptist. We were looking at his messaging there in Matthew chapter 3. And he responds with this kind of attack towards the Pharisees where he tells them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3 verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think that, that shows the sign of a humble heart that's willing to bend beneath the Lord to, 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 to really uh, receive what the Lord is doing and continue to produce fruit. So my prayer for us today is that the Holy Spirit would do a work in each and every one of our lives in tilling the soil of our hearts to receive from him what he's doing and what he's sowing, that we might be fruitful. Because as much as I would like to say this is all on you, and if you just did a better job, you were just a better Christian, Adam. Could, could you just do a little better? Like, could you? Maybe we'd be more fruitful. We understand white-knuckling our way to, like, being better Christians doesn't work. I know I'm talking about putting in work. I know I'm talking about being willing to change. All of this only happens as a response to the Holy Spirit at work. 
We've got to be receptive to his leading. I just don't want anybody here to be off guard when we're talking about the kingdom, when we're talking about what God has invited us to, to be caught off guard and think that it's something that it's not. I want you to know that there is a real enemy that doesn't want you to succeed. I want you to know that there is going to be real trial. There's real hardship that exists for the people of God. But I believe that there is the ability to persevere, persevere and see through this hardship right now. When you're in the midst of tribulation, when you're in the midst of hardship, it's very hard to see past that through the other side. But I want to tell you, you, have, you are serving a God that has been tempted and tried in every way and has seen his way through persecution, has seen his way through tribulation to the other side. And his willingness is to come alongside you and walk with you through the fire, to walk with you through the flood. He doesn't abandon you and leave you there. So if you're in that place right now and there seems to be no hope and there seems to be no answer and you're, will, and you're thinking about just tossing everything up and saying, you know what, I tried the Jesus thing. It wasn't for me. It's not working out. I want to encourage you to hold on. Amen. Hold fast this morning because it does get better. We need to be on guard against the cares of this life. The things that would rob us of passion for Jesus. And so, thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.